This episode of The Dig is supported by The Nation. 150 years of political analysis and progressive solutions online and in print. The Dig listeners can head to thenation.com backslash dig to get a six-month subscription to The Nation for only $12. That's thenation.com backslash dig. Check out this episode's program notes for that URL if you don't have a pen handy. Also, be sure to listen to The Nation's podcast, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Weiner. New episodes every Thursday. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The drug war. It's winding down and heating up all at the same time. States are legalizing recreational weed, including in California, where the medicinal pot market has long already allowed most anyone to secure the herb to treat whatever might be ailing them. Meanwhile, prosecutors around the country are charging dealers, including quite small-time ones, with murder when their drugs contribute to someone else's fatal overdose. In Washington, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has instructed U.S. attorneys to go to the max on severe mandatory minimum sentences, overturning a change made by Eric Holder, Obama's first AG. And so even as harm reduction strategies like supervised injection sites and decriminalization take root in some countries, drug warriors in the United States, especially on the federal level, are still charging forth full force. And a real end to the drug war, which would require the legalization and regulation of drugs from MDMA and LSD to cocaine and heroin, remains off the table amongst policymakers. Are we at the beginning of the end of the drug war? Or, in fact, is it just that we're going to be able to smoke legal weed? Will the government do what it takes to stop fatal overdoses or just keep locking up dealers for incredibly long amounts of time to look tough? Today, my guest is Rick Lines, the executive director of the London-based group, Harm Reduction International. He can help put the debates and fights taking place in the U.S. right now in a global context. I just attended their conference in Montreal, which drew hundreds of researchers and activists for discussions on how to keep people healthy and alive instead of how to lock them up in prison. Rick Lines, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, Dan. So we're recording this interview while you're still in Montreal, where I just left, um, where you pulled off a really massive drug policy conference. Can you explain what harm reduction is to our listeners and also what the Harm Reduction International Conference is? Well, harm reduction is an approach to drug use and drug policy that seeks to reduce so the negative health and social impacts of drug use, um, but not um, focusing exclusively on the reduction or um, stoppage of drug use. Uh, Obviously, most of the sort of status quo approaches to drugs over the last hundred years have been based upon uh, the idea that the only way you deal with drug use is to prevent people from using drugs or stopping them from using drugs. Um, or suppressing um, drug use. What harm reduction um, says is that we live in, wor- in a world where people have always used drugs and that drugs can, in fact, be used in ways that are more dangerous or risky uh, or less danger and ris- dangerous and risky. Uh, we can put in place interventions and programs that make um, act- the act of taking drugs for people who use drugs uh, a safer and healthier thing to do. We can re- reduce the very real risks of fatal and non-fatal overdoses. We can reduce uh, the spread of bloodborne viruses such as HIV and hepatitis. Um, and so at a very basic level, harm reduction is about creating health programs that meet the needs of people who are active drug users and that respect the dignity 
and rights of people who use drugs and don't simply treat them as uh, a problem to be solved, um, you know, treating them as any other, any other person coming into a health facility who has specific health needs and specific health vulnerabilities. On a, on a broader level, harm reduction also recognizes that it's not only drug use itself that can potentially result in harm, but in fact, bad drug policy and bad drug laws also generate harm. Um, so while the bulk of harm reduction tends to focus on providing community-based, low-threshold, often peer-driven health services, uh, at a broader sort of systemic advocacy level, harm reduction is also very much about health and drug policy reform and recognizing that you know, sort of very harsh criminal, criminalized approaches to drugs uh, in themselves drive public harms. Uh, and so part of a broader harm reduction project has also... Um, a focus on trying to reduce these policy harms as well through law reform and through policy reform. It's remarkable because um, people taking drugs is one of the most historically persistent, universal things about what human beings have done on this earth, yet drug policy is dead set dominant drug policy, the ones that govern most governments, are dead set against this basic this basic premise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea that drug use and drug markets uh, and drug sales and drug cultivation can be effectively suppressed by, you know, punitive policies and punitive law, you know, is one that, you know, dates back, you know, 100 years or more, at least in international law and, you know, in domestic law in some cases further than that. And I think, as you say, it's one of the premises that we can see is fundamentally flawed. If we look back over the last 100 years, if we look back over the last 50 years, even after the last 30 years since, you know, sort of the Reagan administration in the 80s, we can see that increasingly punitive approaches to drugs have done nothing to decrease levels of drug use. They've done nothing to suppress drug markets or drug availability. Uh, but what they have done in very many countries of the world is fuel uh, epidemics of HIV and hepatitis C. They fuel epidemics of overdose like we're seeing in the United States and Canada at the moment. And in many countries, they fuel quite horrific human rights abuses. If we look what's going on in the Philippines, if we look at the use of the death penalty in places such as Iran and in China, uh, and in Indonesia, if we look at mass incarceration, particularly people of color in the United States, as a result of the drug war, we can see that in, it's not only a health problem, it's also very much a human rights problem. Montreal was a fitting place to hold this conference. Um, Quebec is moving forward with supervised injection sites, places where injection drug users can use their drugs while monitored by a nurse. Um, and I want to talk more about supervised injection sites in some more detail later. But first, I wanted to ask you about the politics of this. The The very same day that Quebec announced the supervised injection sites opening, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions directed prosecutors to seek harsh mandatory minimum sentences um, with reckless abandon in drug cases, reversing a policy put in place by Eric Holder. Um, it seems like the Trump and Trudeau administrations are heading in totally opposite directions. Yeah, and I think that was certainly um, something that came up in a lot of the presentations in Montreal this week. The announcement by by Jeff Sessions was certainly something that I guess was perhaps not totally unexpected, um, given given his political bent. Um, but just because it was unexpected doesn't mean it was any uh, less <laughs> unwelcome amongst our delegates. Um, and again, to see the U.S. moving so clearly in a retrograde, regressive um, direction in this regard. I mean, particularly as, you know, one of the things that's been a bit interesting in the last number of years is that we had seen um, some unusual bipartisan consensus in the U.S. emerging around, you know, recognition of the, you know, the failure of mandatory minimum sentences and the failure of prison as a response to drugs. And we've seen, you know, sort of some bipartisan initiatives um, in support of sentencing reform and in, in support of decarceration. Um, and so clearly this move by the attorney general is something that uh, is really something that's only going to make matters worse in the U.S., and it's particularly unwelcome in the midst of the overdose crisis that we're, we see at the moment. Um, here in 
Canada, as I said in my opening statements, I mean, Canada has just emerged from 10 years of incredibly conservative um, national politics. Um, Pr uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who'd been in power, um, was a dedicated foe of harm reduction. And he'd waged a war against harm reduction programs uh, in Canada, had tried to shut down the only supervised injecting site in the country through a series of court challenges. He had gone to war with non-governmental organizations and civil society organizations that opposed his agenda. And it's only, again, with the eight, last 18 months with the new Trudeau government coming into power that we're beginning to see uh, some really fantastic moves on harm reduction. We've had the health minister, Jane Philpott, opening the conference talking about the government's support for safe injecting sites, for heroin-assisted treatment, uh, for the wider availability of naloxone and good Samaritan laws uh, and these kinds of things, which campaigners in, in Canada have been advocating for, for years. And I think those kinds of moves by a new government are really a tribute to the strength of the advocacy and activism that went on in Canada for 10 years against the kind of repressive Harper regime, because we did see over 10 years people fighting tooth and nail against the Harper government's position, uh, not just on harm reduction, but on many other social issues. But certainly in the case of harm reduction, we had, you know, organizations of people who use drugs, you know, fighting the regime, demonstrating against the government. We had um, lawyers defending harm reduction programs in the courts. We had civil society organizations continuing to use evidence to disprove the Harper government's claims. And so really over those 10 years, I think it's an important lesson that the harm reduction community and organizations of people who use drugs managed to defend that space for harm reduction in political discourse and not allow it to be demonized. And I think ironically, create a wider space for it. I think the kind of Harper government's attacks on the safe injecting site, which went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, actually ironically created more space to get the harm reduction message out into the mainstream media in a way that doesn't normally happen because it was such a high-profile case. And in defending that space, it creates the opportunity when a new government comes in for a government to actually move in and occupy that space. Uh, so I think it's a real victory. Um, yeah, I don't want to minimize the importance of a new government coming into power, but I think that space was really created and defended by civil society. Yeah, and I think in the U.S. Um, you're seeing a similar approach starting to take root for the the long haul of fighting against the Trump administration. This this week in Philadelphia, a left-wing civil rights attorney won the Democratic primary for DA, and you see kind of people mobilizing on the ground all across the country to push um, against mass incarceration and for harm reduction measures at the state and local level. And I do think it also presents this opportunity for for activists to point at the Trump administration and say, look, this is the kind of person, This is these are the kind of people who back the drug war and sort of tarnish the drug war's brand and kind of politically polarize around the issue of the drug war in a, in a way that's productive to its opponents. Yeah, because I think I mean, even with the change of administration in the U.S., uh, and even with, you know, the Trump administration, like other conservative governments around the world, trying to reignite the drug war as, you know, a convenient enemy, um, you know, through which to try to process its own justifications for public policy. I think, you know, those particular instances don't change the fact that I think there's a broad and growing consensus among just societies everywhere that the traditional status quo punitive approach to drugs uh, is not one that's worked and is not one that should be supported. Uh, and I think as, particularly in North America, as you know, the, the opioid overdose crisis continues to escalate, you know, I think those kinds of you know, blaming, uh, blame politics, you know, um, trying to prosecute and imprison your way out of that kind of public health crisis uh, is increasingly going to be, you know, falling on a non-supportive audience. I mean, non-supportive outside of, you know, Trump's, you know, sort of small percentage of the, of the electorate that's going to support him no matter what. And, and particularly, I think, when uh, anti-drug warriors um, make their attempt to stigmatize drug users, harm reduction advocates can point back and say, no, look, the face of the drug war are people like 
Trump and Duterte, um, there's not a there's not a pretty face to to there's 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 not a moderate face to the drug war so much anymore. No, and I think I think I think you're exactly right. I mean, and I mean Deborah Peterson Small, um, a great activist from the United States, spoke yes uh, in one of our in one of our main uh, main plenaries, and she made the very good point that you know as horrific as the backlash we're seeing is in places like the United States and Hungary and Turkey and the Philippines uh, and to some extent even even the UK um, you know she really felt that that was you know an indication of how threatened those that politics is and that very often if we look at other social movements sometimes the most vicious uh, and aggressive kind of attacks against the social movement come just at the cusp of when that movement is about to break through into the mainstream and kind of, you know, tip public opinion into its favor. And I think there is some truth in that, certainly when it comes when it comes to the drug war. Um, again, the kind of horrific excesses that we're seeing as well, you know, sort of in Latin America, Mexico in particular, which is, if we're talking to a U.S. audience, obviously, is something that's very prominent um, within U.S. political consciousness in the tens of thousands uh, of killings that have happened, you know, just within a few miles of the U.S. border in wars between drug cartels and the the Mexican military and the you know, t- tremendous amount of civilians that have been caught up in those killings. Um, I think we can look from almost from every side the degree to which the drug war is being seen increasingly as just, you know, an, an ever-expanding body count uh, that has little or nothing to do with drugs anymore. And, and a body count that's uh, not exclusively, but disproportionately um, in the U.S. and around the world, uh, poor people and, uh, and uh, marginalized ethnic and racial groups. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this has always been one of the cases um, around the, the, I mean, the, the, the ridiculousness of drug prohibition is that, in fact, the vast majority of people who use drugs um, actually bear little or no consequences of that drug war. For people who are protected or insulated by virtue of their social class, by virtue of their race, um, you know, the drug war doesn't really touch upon them in any significant way, if it touches on them at all. Um, but for poor communities, for communities of color, for communities that are vulnerable in other ways, you know, the drug war and drug criminalization becomes a very effective tool um, of repression and justification of massive policing and incarceration. Um, and I don't think that's, up again, a particularly unique perspective to have anymore. There have been many, many um, great pieces of research and writing done looking at um, the historical basis of drug control, not only in the United States, but other parts of the world where it's often been specifically driven um, by sort of racist um, climates stirred up by the media or by politicians. And we have to remember, I think, at a government level, this is one of the reasons why so many governments, I think, are reluctant to move away from the status quo of drug control is because, in, in essence, you know, the status quo drug control legitimizes and centralizes the authority of the state, and it creates you know, a very powerful um, opportunity or rationale to justify all kinds of you know, otherwise intrusive measures and repressive measures that would otherwise not really be tolerated by people. Uh, but again, you can create a very easy enemy uh, by manipulating you know, the fears around the drug war, and that can be used uh, by politicians of all stripes to justify intrusive and repressive measures. I think that's a really important point. I mean, there's such a remarkable contrast between the drug warriors and the harm reduction community. The harm reduction community has this incredibly intense uh, emphasis on scientific research and evidence and approaching drugs as a as a public health issue. Whereas for the drug warriors um, in the drug war, drugs are really just a a, a pretext, like you're saying, the, the, what what the drug war is really doing is really about a whole lot of other things around social control of of, of marginalized populations. Because it's not really about drugs, like you say, the majority of people who use drugs are not targeted. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for the for the majority of people in most countries that I've been to who are targeted by the drug war, uh, drugs have little or nothing to do with 
you know, the systemic marginalization and discrimination that they face. If you, if you took drugs out of the equation, you know, the people who are criminalized by the drug war will still primarily be poor people. They'll primarily be younger people. They'll primarily be, you know, people of um, whatever ethnic minority or racial minority is um, sort of targeted within that particular country. Um, so the drug war just becomes another layer um, um, of vulnerability placed on top of the already systemic discriminatory factors that will exist in any society. Um, but the, if the advantage from a social control point of view is obviously the drug war then provides a pretext to use criminal law as a specific <laughs> and excusable tool uh, to try to do that social control. Um Political scientist Naomi Murakawa has a really interesting article on the public and media discourse in the U.S. around the idea of meth mouth. I don't know if you've, you've seen that. No. Um, and it basically just exposes this whole um, hysteria over the idea of this this image of poor white meth addicts with their teeth and mouth all fucked up from meth use um, and how this was actually – uh, more about stigmatizing poor people who lack access to dental care um, in the United States and using uh, meth use as a, as a pretext to, to stigmatize a sort of despised uh, uh, poor white population. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting because we've seen similar kinds of campaigns like that in in parts of Europe as well, but only linking it to methadone um, and sort of saying that you know, methadone rots your teeth and methadone you know, ruin your dental work. Uh, so, yeah, there are some parallels um, to that even in, in, in some of the European kind of anti-drug um, advocacy. This episode of The Dig is sponsored by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by the University of California Press. One title that I think listeners might find interesting is The 50-Year Rebellion, How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit by Scott Kurashige, out now as an ebook. On July 23, 1967, the eyes of the world fixed on Detroit as thousands took to the streets to vent their frustrations with white racism, police brutality, and vanishing job prospects. For mainstream observers, the riot brought about the ruin of a once great city, and the municipal bankruptcy of 2013 served as a bailout, paving the way for Detroit to be rebuilt. Challenging this prevailing view, Kurashige portrays the past half-century as a long rebellion whose underlying tensions continue to haunt the city and the U.S. nation-state. Michigan's scandal-ridden emergency management regime comprises the most concerted effort to put it down by disenfranchising the majority black citizenry and neutralizing the power of unions. The 50-Year Rebellion, How the U.S. Political Crisis Began in Detroit, by Scott Kurashige. Out now from University of California Press. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but The Dig and Dan Dumper are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the sh show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, to support this show, go to patreon.com and look up The Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. For for all that we've said about how the Trump bag clash probably signals the strength of the movement against the drug war, um, before we move on, I just want to uh, pause to reflect upon the fact that these that the backlash still is incredibly dangerous and that... Um, people will lose their lives and go to prison as a result as, of it. Um, it. It's it's just so it's this reminder, I think, of of how tenacious and powerful the drug war ideology um, or more basically the prohibitionist ideology um, remains, because just a few just just until recently, as you mentioned, there was this sense that of a growing bipartisan consensus around um, at least reducing, if not ending, mass incarceration and uh, curbing, if not ending, the the drug war. But now there's this all too familiar refrain where politicians are pointing at the opioid crisis, the opioid overdose crisis in the U.S. and saying, look, this is why we need to lock people up. This is why we need to militarize the border further. And it's just so familiar from every single drug crisis that that uh, we've had in this country in the last few decades. 
Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that on a, you know, a broader systemic level, I mean, the drug war drives death or early death, you know, in multiple ways. I mean, it's not just about the people who will die as a result of lack of access to health care, lack of access to harm reduction measures, you know, people who will die through overdose or people who will die through um, the complications of HIV or hepatitis C, for example. We have, you know, people who die prematurely as a result of years in prison. You know, if they don't die in prison, you know, their lives will be shortened through surviving the impacts of prison. Uh, it's people who die as a result of the criminal markets and the wars to control those criminal markets. It's people who die at the hands of police directly um, through police shootings or, you know, police shootings mixed with vigilantism in, in a country like the Philippines. So, I mean, the drug war drives you know, death and and lost lives from really every angle you can look at it. Just you know, not just the you know the the, the health effects, which would be in many cases easily minimized or resolved through harm reduction. Um, to circle back just to the basics of harm reduction, can you lay out um, some of the most critical harm reduction strategies that the movement the community is proposing right now and what sort of evidence they have backing them up? Well, the most common, I mean, harm reduction measure that people will probably be familiar with um, and that sort of epitomizes the harm reduction approach is that of needle and syringe exchange, um, basically providing people who inject drugs with access to sterile injecting equipment, whether that be needles and syringes uh, or cookers or other injecting-related paraphernalia. And this is a, a very good example of the harm reduction response. The needle exchange programs were developed originally in the 1980s um, as a response to the HIV epidemics amongst people who inject drugs. And it was a, a response to the fact that in those communities, you know, the risk factor for spreading or contracting HIV was sharing a syringe that someone else had used. So the way to intervene and eliminate that risk was to ensure that anyone who was injecting was never put into the position of having to share a syringe with someone else. And the way you do that is make sure that people always have access to sterile syringes. So the goal of the health intervention in this case is not to stop people from injecting. Rather, it's recognizing that people are going to inject. Injecting in this context creates a very specific risk of HIV or hepatitis C transmission. And the easiest and most effective way to eliminate that risk is simply to provide sterile injecting equipment. I mean, that's one of the very early harm reduction responses. It's still one of the main harm reduction responses in the context of HIV and hepatitis C. And I think it's one that really epitomizes kind of the pragmatism of the harm reduction philosophy. But we have other very important interventions as well. Um, Medications such as methadone and buprenorphine. So um, synthetic um, opioid um, replacement therapies. Um, So for people who are dependent on injectable heroin, for example, um, methadone and buprenorphine are prescription-based oral medications. Um, So people who are dependent on heroin can come off street heroin and transfer to one of these pharmaceutical products. So it enables them to avoid injecting avoid having to engage with criminal markets in order to get the heroin, uh, not have to be put in the position of purchasing street drugs of unknown quality or uh, you know, not knowing what, what they're cut with, and also puts people in touch with health and social services. So, again, a very effective uh, health intervention that doesn't necessitate people uh, you know, eliminating the use of opioids, but it's a way to manage opioid use uh, in a way that's much more uh, sustainable and, and much less involved with risk as a result of um, street-based heroin. Uh, more recent, I suppose, uh, at least in the North American context, interventions and ones that are quite, uh, I guess, quite important at the moment are the growth of safe injecting facilities, which you mentioned before, and this was certainly... A big focus of the conference, and there's certainly a big move in Canada at the moment to open more safe injecting facilities, and I know there's movements across the U.S. to do the same. Safe safe injecting facilities are essentially 
health clinics, drop-in health clinics, where people who inject drugs can go into the clinic and inject safely in the presence of medical and other kinds of community-based staff, often peer-based staff as well. Uh, and they're really geared primarily for people who are either homeless or underhoused, who would otherwise be engaged in very risky injecting behavior in public places, either in parks or in alleys, you know, or behind behind buildings. Uh, obviously, in those cases, injecting uh, in very unhygienic circumstances and circumstances that put them at very high risk of overdose because of the isolated and hidden nature of it. Safe injecting facilities create a space where people can bring their drugs in. Uh, they're usually sort of... Um, Amnesty, amnesty sort of type places where people will not be prosecuted for bringing their street drugs in, and they can access safe injecting equipment there, uh, and actually be uh, have a place to sort of relax and chill out after the injecting, um, just to guard against overdose. So they're very effective at reducing the risks of HIV and hepatitis C uh, because people are using sterile equipment. They're also very, very effective at preventing fatal overdoses because in the case of an overdose, we have medical staff on site who can tend to people and care for people. Uh, so these have been very, very effective you know, uh, programs geared at a very, very vulnerable population uh, within different countries. And we have them in 10 countries at the moment, primarily in Western Europe, although we have them in a, one in Australia and uh, a few opening up in Canada now. Um, they have been quite controversial. As I said, they were the one that had been existing in Vancouver and Canada had been the basis of several years of court cases when the conservative government tried to unsuccessfully shut it down. Uh, but here in Canada, the new federal government is a, a big supporter of safe injecting sites. We had the announcement that two new uh, fixed sites were going to be approved and opening up in Quebec within the next couple of weeks. So it's certainly a growing uh, intervention here in Canada, and I know there's a lot of interest in the United States to try to replicate some of these models. In terms of opioid substitution, can you explain a little bit about the difference between something like buprenorphine, I can never pronounce that right, um, and prescription heroin? Um, well, bup buprenorphine is taken... Um, orally. Uh, buprenorphine has a very long half-life, so you might take uh, a, a buprenorphine pill once a day or once every couple of days. Uh, prescription heroin is injectable, um, so people will continue to inject pharmaceutical-grade heroin uh, two or three times a day. I mean, the, the main difference between the two will be one will be taken orally and one will be injected, as you would inject street-based heroin, except it's a, a very clean and, you know, approved pharmaceutical products, and yet you have more doses over the course of a day. Uh, but still very, very safe and effective. I and mean, injectable heroin is not, as a, as a, as a prescription product, is, is not something that exists in very many countries, although it's something that's starting again to gain more, more attention. Um, we have it in Switzerland, certainly, and we had a very successful pilot project here in Canada, and now the federal government is making moves to try to make what we call, call heroin-assisted treatment more available here in this country. In terms of different types of opioid users, who is more likely to benefit from heroin-assisted treatment or prescription heroin on the one hand and a substitute like buprenorphine or methadone on the other? It really depends upon the individual person. I mean, from our, from our perspective, as, as a harm reduction organization, these are simply providing people options in terms of healthcare, in terms of medication. Um, and with you know, many other um, healthcare interventions, we have di different options uh, of, of medications that some people respond to better in some ways or worse than others. So, I mean, from our perspective, the provision of heroin-assisted treatment is simply another tool in the healthcare box to meet the needs of people, you know, some of whom will respond better uh, and, and have, find themselves easier uh, maintained on a, on a heroin program than they would on a methadone program or a buprenorphine program. So it's merely adding a diversity and a, another, another health uh, tool uh, for doctors and for, and for people who use drugs um, to access, uh, to try to address and reduce the harms. Um, just to step back a moment on this subject, if you could tell me a little about um, the opioid overdose crisis in the U.S. It's probably one of the most extensively covered domestic issues in the United States for a few years running right now, but I still think that there's a lot of misunderstanding as to its context, um, especially in terms of 
the synthetic opioid, the very powerful synthetic opioid fentanyl, which has adulterated much of the market here? Yeah, I know there's been many, many more people in the U.S. writing and responding to this than than than, than I could, and could give much more complete information. Uh, but basically, I mean, what we see with the overdose crisis again is another example of the incredible failure of drug prohibition. I mean, synthetic opioids such as fentanyl, um, which are manufactured and produced um, not from the original plants, but are produced in the laboratories and are much much stronger um, than typical heroin. I mean, those kinds of products are a response to prohibition, either to try to get around existing drug laws by slightly modifying the molecular makeup of a substance, uh, or the fact that, you know, because you have to, <laughs> it's easier to transport things in smaller quantities. Um, you know, prohibition, by its very basis, drives, you know, sort of drug producers or drug manufacturers or drug sellers to produce ever, you know, more strong substances um, for a variety of reasons. Um, so, I mean, fentanyl is really an example of one of the failures of prohibition that's leading to, you know, incredible levels of death, both in, in the United States and in Canada. Uh, also mixed in, of course, with um, a lot of prescription-based um, overdoses, over, you know, the overdoses related to uh, prescription opioids of various kinds. So we see a, a mix between the two. Uh, but clearly what needs to be done is you know, declaring a, some kind of public health emergency in this response. We can't see countries going back to trying to simply um, you know, prosecute people um, or to try to imprison their way out of this crisis or look to blame people you know, who are purchasing or who are selling or who are uh, who are moving drugs around? We actually have to get back to the very basis that, that we are. We can avoid these kinds of deaths. We can avoid these kinds of deaths through providing information, through providing services, through not criminalizing people or having them afraid, through providing access to things such as naloxone, which will allow people who use drugs to reverse and respond to overdoses and save people's lives. We do have very effective policy as well as health-based interventions to try to stem some of this crisis. Uh, and sadly. Um, Many parts of the country, politicians are very slow um, to respond to these kinds of things because, as you say, the drug war stigmatizes people. So um, it's not uh, it creates enemies, and so they're not people who use drugs are very often not uh, anywhere on the list of politically popular causes for elected officials to respond to. One irony that seems to be at the root of the opioid overdose crisis is that. In two kind of seemingly different ways, a lack of regulation is at the root of it. On the one hand, you have prohibition, which leaves the the street market for heroin totally unregulated um, in terms of what the quality and content of the drug is. And then on the other hand, you have the prescription opioid market, uh, which started it all when pharmaceutical companies with very little in the way of check from the federal government of being checked by the federal government massively expanded the supply of prescription opioids. So we have this legal market and an illicit market, but both share, ironically, I think, a sort of like hands-off uh, philosophy in terms of the quality of the drugs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and also, you know, you know the the, the distribution. I mean, I think, I mean, that is a cautionary tale. I mean, obviously, as uh, in parts of the United States, for example, or in Canada, some other parts of the world are, you know, increasingly talking more openly about, you know, the legal regulation of recreational non-medical use of drugs, you know, starting with cannabis and maybe some others. Uh, it's an important cautionary tale to recognize that regulation, legal regulation can be done well, or it can be done Badly, I think you know many people often, I think, rightly point to alcohol and tobacco as examples of you know sort of consciousness expanding substances that are legally available. Um, yet, I think many of us would argue that the regulatory frameworks around alcohol and tobacco are not necessarily ones that are done in the best interests of public health or reducing harm. They're done to maximize the profits of alcohol and tobacco companies. Uh, and I think that's one of the um, things we have to keep in mind when we're looking at trying to move away from criminal, criminalized approaches to drugs towards legally regulated markets, um, that you know, we have to be wary of the influence of big business in trying to push those regulatory decisions in a way that benefits their profits without necessarily um, making health and safety um, and choice the center of 
those decisions. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, which we're getting a taste of right now in the U.S. with state-level marijuana legalization, um, and it's a potentially you know many, many million, many billions dollars size market. And right now, it's mostly smaller companies and, and big capital is sort of sitting on the sidelines. But once once federal prohibition ends in the U.S. and it will end at some point, um, I think that will give a clear signal for big business to move in. And with pot, it's much lower stakes because it's just pot. <laughs> um, yeah. But if you had the sort of alcohol, tobacco business model applied to to heroin, um, that might not be the legalization and regulation framework that that anti-drug warriors want to fight for. Yeah, no, and I think I think it's an important debate for harm reductionists and drug policy reformers to get involved with and not shy away from, because I know in the U.S. particularly, you know, those arguments around the corporatization of cannabis, for example, are ones that are being sort of manipulated by the anti-drug side as a way to try to campaign against the state-level ballot initiatives. Uh, and they're trying to use kind of the boogeyman of big industry and big pot as as a way to kind of scare people away from from a regulated market. Um, so I think that for, for us on the harm reduction and drug policy reform side, we shouldn't be afraid from getting involved in those regulatory discussions um, for fear of somehow being painted as um, sort of the anti-cannabis lobby. You know, I think very clearly we need to be involved in being, you know, particularly involving people who use drugs and other other constituencies within those policy discussions to put in place some sensible regulatory markets you know, that aren't based upon, you know, kind of <laughs> no regulation profit at any cost, uh, but at the same time don't shy away from sensible policy and legal reforms that would have the effect of decriminalizing um, people, <laughs> avoiding criminal law as a way to control drugs and actually making drugs you know, healthier and, and, and less risky and the environments around them healthier and less risky. Uh, yeah, I think there's sometimes a philosophy amongst opponents of the drug war that um, people, anti, that uh, anti-prohibition people on the more socialist left and anti-prohibition people on the libertarian right um, should work together where there's common ground. And I agree. But the minute that the movement starts winning and enough to actually be talking about legal and regulated markets for things like like heroin, um, there's going to be a debate that gets down to fundamental political and economic philosophy, even though both camps are grounded in a civil libertarian perspective when it comes to people's rights to use drugs and the failure of, of prohibiting them from doing so. Yeah, and, and I think that whole debate around allegiances between sort of drug policy reformers uh, on the left and libertarians is something that's much more alive and active in the U.S., probably more so than other parts of the world. But I, mean, I think for those of us who are harm reductionists, it's a very different debate um, because it's very difficult <laughs> from my perspective for harm reductionists to build bridges with libertarians because harm reduction isn't just about removing criminal laws from drug markets. The harm reduction is about reducing harms, um, you know, improving the dignity of people who use drugs, improving human rights conditions um, around and providing things such as universal health care, for example, which is a <laughs> fundamental principle of, of, of a harm reduction response, which is fundamentally at odds with um, with many of those libertarian positions. So if I'm talking as, as a harm reductionist, I see almost zero common ground between what I think and what a libertarian would think, even if that libertarian was interested in, you know, a legalized drug model. Um, because for a harm reduction response, that legalized model is only one component of a much bigger um, sort of um, social safety net. People uh, do like to use a variety of drugs, and I want to kind of go through a few different ones and talk to you about what the current state of prohibition and regulation or lack thereof is with each one and what a legal, regulated, safer market might look like. And uh, I want to start with MDMA, Molly, Ecstasy, which um, because of its prohibition um, has been leading to a lot of ER visits and deaths in the U.S. and I believe in Europe as well. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, from my point of view, I would certainly not pretend to be an expert on legally regulated models. I mean, certainly we have harm reduction approaches 
um, to try to de- deal with the harms related to different types of drugs. Um, and I think sort of, you know, those, that category of drugs we've seen recently, ex- ex- uh, expansions and things such as pill testing, uh, for example. We had some presentations on that at our conference here. Um, it's something that's becoming increasingly popular, um, certainly in the UK where we're based and some other parts of Europe, particularly like festivals, um, big music events where we'll have actually sort of community-based organizations providing pill testing on site um, for, for concert goers and festival goers. I mean, that's one particular intervention, again, which seems to be growing. I think one of the challenges um, that's increasing for the harm reduction response historically is that we basically, you know, sort of centered uh, our model around the harms related to injecting drug use generally and opiate injecting specifically. Um, and so things such as needle and syringe exchange programs and you know, methadone and, and, and buprenorphine uh, interventions such as naloxone for overdose are all very much centered around both injecting and or opioid uh, opioid use. And one of the challenges, more broadly for the harm reduction approach, as we say, is that people use drugs beyond opiates. And in fact, in many parts of the world, opiate use is on the decline, and we have a much, uh, you know, the, the use of amphetamines, for example, is, is really increasing. So again, one of the challenges, I think, for our response is how do we make it actually uh, robust and adapting to ever-changing drug markets, ever-changing popularity of different kinds of drugs, uh, different criminalized environments, different populations of people who use different kinds of drugs, and, you know, the drugs themselves having different possible harms as a result. Uh, that's something we've tried to incorporate in the conference uh, to a great extent uh, this time, obviously, you know, with the increase of new psychoactives and other things. So it's an increasing challenge for the harm reduction community uh, around the world uh, and something that needs to become an increasing focus of what we do. Yeah, tell me more about new psychoactive substances, because increasingly, at least in the U.S., we're seeing things that are purportedly Molly or MDMA that are full of something else, um, like caffeinones even, um, uh, and uh, synthetic cannabinoids. There's all these, there, there's just a welter of, of new um, new drugs on the market. Yeah, and again, I mean, the... You know, sort of the development of new psychoactives is another, I mean, textbook example of why prohibition as a concept doesn't work. Um, because the way, you know, criminalization of drugs generally works is you have a list. You know, you have your domestic criminal justice law, your drug law, and it will have attached to it a list of particular drugs that will be you know, legally available in certain ways through prescription or other things and things that will be fundamentally illegal in any form. Um, and what new psychoactives generally do is create synthetically um, substances that mimic, you know, the psychoactive properties of those illegal drugs, but do it by modifying slightly the molecular structure. You know, so technically it's not the drug, you know, in a in a chemical sense that is criminalized in the, in, the, in, the, in the penal code, but in the user it produces similar kinds of psychoactive responses. Um, and this, again, just sort of shows the failure of prohibition, because presumably these types of sort of laboratory um, manipulations can go on almost endlessly. So how does the law try to catch up with in- increasingly trying to criminalize or prohibit you know, drugs that are coming out all the time, you know, the drugs that aren't based upon, you know, the traditional, you know, coca, cannabis, opium, and, you know, some of the the, you know, the typical kind of laboratory-based synthetics like LSD and MDMA and others. So it shows very much the failure of prohibition as an approach because increasingly science can just get around it. But what happens in the meantime is the risk that these new psychoactives, we don't know what's in them. They can be, in some cases, you know, more dangerous than the otherwise kind of uh, more traditional drugs that they're created to replicate or to or to reproduce and create new kinds of harms that, again, um, harm reductionists and the medical community and people who use drugs and peer groups are trying to respond to uh, in very, you know, challenging ways. It's very difficult to respond uh, to these drugs that are coming out all the time. Hi, this is Dan Denver, your host, cutting into the interview to thank you for your support on Patreon.com and to ask those listeners who haven't pitched in yet to consider doing so. This podcast is now my part-time job, 
which is sort of crazy, but also amazing. To keep this up, though, I need your support to make it sustainable for myself and to pay my producer and cover overhead. A few dollars a month goes a long way, so please visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. We also have lots of great swag available, including from Sarah Jaffe, George Chikarello-Mar, Nicole Ashoff, Diane Ravitch, and Marie Gottschalk. Thank you again, and now back to the show. I want to zoom out to the international level. Can you talk a little bit about the whole international component of drug policy? And a lot of listeners might not know that there's this international drug prohibition regime that formalizes the drug war on a global scale. And the U.S. had a major role in building that, right? Yeah, I mean, as I said at the beginning, international treaties on drug control um, go back to 1912. It was the first one, the international, first international opium convention. Um, and there's been a series of international drug control treaties um, as we move through the League of Nations period and then into the UN period. Um, sort of the modern international regime is based upon three international conventions, one in 1961, one in 1971, and one in 1988. And these are the treaties upon which the domestic drug law in pretty much every country of the world is modeled. Um, you know, much of what's in those treaties is, you know, really fairly, I think, uncontentious um, guidance on, you know, sort of labeling, production, um, licensing, this kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, when we get into sort of the modern kind of context of the drug war, it also is a regime that uses and sort of mandates the use of criminal law as a tool um, to suppress any kind of drug markets or drug use that falls outside of what are otherwise categorized as medical and scientific use, and for which these type of drugs are legal. So basically any kind of recreational use that falls out of a medical purpose or scientific purpose, criminal law is mandated as the response to sort of a punitive approach. And then they say this is the response that's now you know, basically the status quo in every country of the world. And yeah, clearly it was something that was very much driven by the United States at a political level. Um, but that said, it also kind of mimicked and fell quite neatly into existing kind of prohibitionist, uh, but immoral or religious frameworks in other parts of the world. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's a punitive regime that has gotten increasingly harsh over time. We can trace you know, with increasing ferocity, you know, the drug war beginning in sort of the 1970s uh, during Nixon's years going up through Reagan and certainly the mid to late 80s when the most recent drug control treaty was adopted that really widened and expanded the criminal net of the drug war in international law and then into domestic law. And since the adoption of that treaty in 88, and we've tracked in our work, um, you know, the increase of the use of the death penalty for drugs, for example, in, in domestic law. And we can certainly trace the increase of the HIV epidemic, which happened or began sort of contemporaneously with that, with that treaty. Uh, we can certainly look at the increase of prison populations in the United States and other parts of the world to Released, sorry, directly related to you know, increased use of criminal law as a tool. Um, so you can't really separate domestic law in most parts of the world from the international uh, treaties that create the framework um, for which that law is based. And currently, there is, in recent years, there has been a fight um, led by harm reduction advocates, drug user activists, and also more progressive countries to alter that regime, right? Um, yeah, there's certainly been attempts to try to mitigate some of the worst excesses. Um, I mean, the, op the idea of reopening the treaties for renegotiation um, is something that gets talked about a bit, but it's not really feasible because while we do have a small number of countries, you know, that are doing or talking about doing more progressive and innovative approaches, um, certainly the context in the international arena for talking about different approaches to drug policy is a completely different than it was 10 years ago. Um, but that said, the vast majority of countries in the world you know, are quite happy 
with the status quo when it comes to drugs. You know, and are either staunch defenders of the existing regime or are fairly disinterested and don't really have any real motivation to change it. And among those countries, we have some very powerful actors, countries like Russia for a start, countries like China, um, certainly the federal government in the U.S. now would be on, would fall into that camp. So while we do have some countries that are seeking to try to, as I say, to create some flexibilities and exercise some legal flexibilities within the international regime to expand um, harm reduction programs, to move to decriminalization of possession for personal use, uh, to try to find what kind of flexibilities we can within the legal framework. Um, the anticipation of sort of broad treaty reform is really a bit of um, a no-go area at this point in time. But still, I think, in, I think individual countries can and really should continue to try to adopt their own approaches uh, to domestic drug control because there are many other you know, important issues related to drugs at this point in time that are very different than 100 years ago when this kind of idea of using punitive law to control drugs emerged. You know, certainly we have very, very strong commitments and obligations around human rights protections, you know, which didn't exist in, in international law, you know, even in the early 1960s, really. So there are other obligations that countries need to balance um, within their drug control response, and we would certainly argue not just solely focus on drug suppression as your only obligation. Currently, on the international, in terms of international institutions, what are your priorities short of reopening these or getting rid of these treaties? Even. Well, I mean, our main objective over the last ten years has been to really expand out interest and discussions around drugs. And about 10, 10 or 11 years ago, when we started to do work on the international level, uh, really the only discussions that happened around drug use within the UN, for example, and member states meeting at the UN, happened within the context of the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which is the specialist kind of committee that talks about drug issues, um, and to try to get human rights bodies talking about drugs, to try to get development bodies talking about drugs, um, was pretty much impossible. Because if you went to them with an idea around drugs, they would say, well, we don't do drugs. That's the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. Um, you had some interest from UNAIDS, from WHO, from a, you know, who'd been, always been you know, reasonably strong on, on harm reduction going back to the early 90s. Uh, but really one of our main objectives has always been to try to broaden the conversation and to have other agencies with specific mandates, you know, you know, specifically around human rights and development and health, to be more active in putting pressure and having a voice within these drug control regimes and these UN drug control meetings and not just turning it over to, you know, the kind of, you know, the Ministry of Justice types and Ministry of the Interior types that uh, that typically populate and, and, and represent countries in those discussions, you know, and try to bring in domestic health ministries, domestic human rights mechanisms if they exist. And through that process to try to broaden out our understanding, not only of drugs and drug use, but the impacts of drug criminalization and drug laws. I've certainly seen some success in that, and that's, I would say that certainly has had the effect of shifting some of the discourse on, on drug use, uh, particularly over the last five years. Um, we also, of course, have had great leadership from some Latin American states who have played a great role within the UN pushing the concerns around the destabilization effects of the drug war on their own countries by strengthening criminal cartels uh, and the effects that that has in terms of corruption of public officials and, in many cases, very, very high levels of violence in those countries directly related to drug markets and drug trafficking um, and pretty much all all drug markets that are ended up in the U.S. and Canada. <laughs> it's not even drugs that are primarily consumed by the domestic populations in those countries. So we have seen, you know, some very, you know, I think very positive moves in beginning to expand the discussion and understanding of the effects of the drug war. Um, linked to that, I think, at a civil society level, um, from, our, from our work is the emergence of very strong and articulate networks of people who use drugs around the world, uh, very often sending representatives to these meetings to represent the perspectives of their own communities. And I've always said that that's a critical part of the advocacy response because so much of the war on drugs is based upon this 
premise that people who use drugs are either sort of self-indulgent or chaotic or, you know, don't care about them, their health or somehow unable to participate in public decision-making. And, and I think that the presence of organized and articulate you know, advocates for people who use drugs at these meetings you know, puts the lie to that, you know, that premise. Uh, and people who come to those meetings representing drug user organizations, I think, are some of the most important voices that we've heard in those environments. And certainly they're becoming stronger and stronger every year, which is, which is a fantastic accomplishment. Um, your group, Harm Reduction International, um, one way that you're seeking to make these changes on the level of international institutions is through what you're calling a 10 by 20 um, your 10 by 20 campaign. Can you lay that out? Yeah, one of the big threats to harm reduction globally at the moment is a massive underfunding of the harm reduction response. We know that harm reduction programs, you know, are not only effective at, you know, reducing health risks, um, promoting dignity and human rights of people who use drugs, but from a government perspective, they're also very cost effective. Um, you know, one dollar invested in harm reduction saves many, many dollars down the line in terms of uh, treatment for infections, in terms of pro- lost productivity, in terms of lost lives. Um, so we try to make the economic case for harm reduction at the same time that we make the health and human rights case. But at the same time, the harm reduction response, as I say, is drastically underfunded. Um, yet at the same time, we know that tens of billions of dollars a year are you know, almost uncritically poured into punitive law enforcement responses to drugs around the world. And so we've been campaigning on for about the last 18 months to two years, not just ourselves, but the broader harm reduction community. It's something called the 10 by 20 campaign, which is a, a campaign to encourage governments to shift 10% of their domestic drugs funding away from punitive and law enforcement-based approaches into health and human rights and harm reduction-based approaches to drugs by the year 2020. And a part of it is to try to emphasize um, the vast amounts of money that are squandered on punitive and ineffective drug enforcement interventions, while at the same time also highlighting you know, the massive lack of investment into health and harm reduction approaches. And certainly in times of austerity, when many governments are arguing that we don't have money to provide these vital sort of health and social services, what the 10 by 20 campaign tries to say is, look, you're already spending money on drugs. You're spending tens of billions of dollars on drug enforcement every year. So we're not asking for new money. What we're asking for is reinvestment of current drug budgets away from things that we know don't work and in many cases abuse the rights of people who use drugs or the rights of people who produce drugs uh, and move them into health and human rights-based and harm reduction-based approaches. Our estimate was we had some mathematical modeling done by the Burnett Institute in Australia. And the estimate that they came up with for us was that with a reinvestment of only 7.5% of global spend on harm, sorry, global spend on drug enforcement, we could basically eliminate HIV amongst people who inject drugs by 2030. So we could even do less than 10 by 20 to achieve many of these objectives we're looking for. To close out, I wanted to talk about a harm reduction success story. It's not full legalization regulation, but Portugal has decriminalized drug use. And as a result, there have been some pretty positive results. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, decriminalization of possession for personal use is really one of the main advocacy asks for the harm reduction uh, movement at this point in time and for movement of people, movements of people who use drugs. Um, because very often it's that possession, possession of Sorry, the criminalization of possession of personal use is really just a proxy offense for drug use. It's basically a way to criminalize individual drug users, which obviously has all kinds of negative impacts on those people and their lives and the, the threat they live under from law enforcement, uh, but also from you know health and harm reduction response. Also, in many cases, has the effect of criminalizing the services or making people uh, wary of accessing services for fear of identifying themselves as an active drug user. Uh, what we saw in Portugal, Portugal is one of about 30 or 40 countries around the world that's actually decriminalized possession of personal use. Um, but Portugal um, has been very, very, I guess, prominent in 
in that group of countries uh, because they've had tremendous uh, success over the last 10 years in really reversing what had been very, very high rates of HIV infection amongst people who inject drugs. And it's important to point out that in the case of Portugal, it wasn't simply just a move to decriminalize possession for personal use of all drugs. That was a very important component, but they also invested significant amounts of money in scaling up and making more accessible the harm reduction services across the country. So it is really a good example of the combination of sort of not only providing the services, but also trying to make the environment in which those services are accessed less people who would access them. Um, and that's call for decriminalization is one that's finding increasing voice, certainly within our sector, because we do recognize, as I said at the very beginning, that the policy environments and the legal environments in which drug use um, takes place also itself drives harm. You know, we have to also be looking always at the policy and legal harms produced by the current regime, not only the individual harms uh, based upon uh, drug use itself. Yeah, I think that's an extremely important point to close out. And we've talked about a lot about uh, users' needs and rights, uh, and rightfully so. But one of the least discussed uh, reasons that the drug war needs to end and that prohibition needs to end is just the bloodshed and havoc that it wreaks on um production and distribution countries where production and distribution is is going on looking from the US perspective on what our drug war has done to Colombia, Central America and Mexico um, and yet our political response is still to blame those countries for 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 their problems. It's remarkable. Yep, I would agree with you totally there. <laughs> <laughs> um Rick Lines, thank you very much for your time. And uh, remember what Jeff Sessions said, um, good people don't smoke marijuana. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Rick Lines is the executive director of Harm Reduction International. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx is once reported to have said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. And if you're using iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. As weird as that seems, it does help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends the old-fashioned way. Please make all sorts of propaganda on our behalf. And also find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is extremely helpful. Extremely helpful.